There is a natural progression in Jesus' correction of Pharisaical misinterpretations in the Sermon on the Mount. We've discussed this before, but let's recap. He begins with the prohibition of murder, which includes feelings of hate and anger. Next, Jesus prohibits adultery, which includes lust. Adultery is the death of a marriage, and as such, adultery is equal to murder. From there, Jesus upheld the law's allowance for divorce in cases of adultery. In the theocratic kingdom, adultery, like murder, was punishable by death. In nations where God's law is not the law, God substituted divorce for the death penalty. Faithlessness to one's marriage led Jesus to address the law of vows, exhorting his followers to keep their vows. Failure to keep one's vows defrauds God's character and reputation. Next, Jesus dealt with the law of retaliation. Those who abandoned their spouse and broke their vows made enemies. As such, the Pharisees encouraged a liberal view of lex talionis, or tit-for-tat retaliation, that allowed individuals to seek revenge against those who wronged them. To that end, Jesus upheld that the law of retaliation was given to the judicial system, not individuals. Furthermore, he admonished his followers to practice non-resistance against those who hurt them. Now, the progression of Jesus' correction continues in Matthew 5, 43-48. Whereas Jesus commands his followers, do not resist an evil person, he now commands, love your enemies. Here, Jesus corrects the misinterpretation of the royal law. Now, the term royal means kingly. Hence, this particular law is the law of the king. Being the king's law, it is final and authoritative. James defines the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, James 2.8. Specifically, as found in Leviticus 19.18, the royal law was the law which Jesus the king declared to be second only to loving God. He says in Matthew 22.34-39, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the command to love your neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 is the summation of Leviticus 19.9-18, which commands us as believers to show justice to the helpless, that is, the needy, such as orphans and widows, the strangers, such as immigrants, the poor, the deaf, the blind, and others that are disabled. Hence, your neighbor includes orphans, widows, immigrants, poor, and disabled. And in case anyone thinks that such a definition of one's neighbor is only for the Jews, consider Exodus 12.49. The same law applies to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, as Jesus continues addressing the pharisaical misinterpretations of Scripture, he restores the original intent of the royal law. Thus, in Matthew 5.43-44, he sets forth the royal law properly interpreted. Again, the royal law properly interpreted. Matthew 5, 43 to 44. Let's read it. Matthew 5, 43 to 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus begins with the phrase, you have heard that it was said. 
He begins by stating the Pharisaical misinterpretation as taught in their oral teachings and traditions. Now, this particular misinterpretation is a blatant omission and addition to God's law. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Both the omission and addition are blatant violations of God's law. Again, Deuteronomy 4.2 clearly demands you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. Now, the first part of their misinterpretation, you shall love your neighbor, comes straight from Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Note the omission of the phrase, as yourself. By removing those two words, the Pharisees remove the standard or bar for how to love God. God's law states that we are to love our neighbors as much or in the same manner that we love ourselves. Loving others in the same way one would love themselves sets the bar of loving one's neighbor very high. Now note the addition of the phrase, and hate your enemy. This addition narrows the definition of one's neighbor. In essence, an enemy cannot be a neighbor, and a neighbor cannot be an enemy. See, it was not enough to say that people did not need to love their enemies. The Pharisees commanded that people hate their enemies. The verb hate, maseo, implies actively engaging in hostility towards another person. Now, as one follows the natural progression of the text, we cannot help but see how this misinterpretation flows out of the previous misinterpretation. In Matthew 5, 38-42, Jesus addressed the law of retaliation, which the Pharisees twisted to mean that people were free to take the law of retaliation into their own hands and seek justice from anyone who harmed them. By now redefining or narrowing who is or is not their neighbor... The Pharisees expanded the list of against whom they seek or could seek revenge. You see, no one would seek revenge against their neighbor. After all, they were to love their neighbor. However, according to the Pharisees, if their neighbor wronged them, they're no longer their neighbor but their enemy. Accordingly, all someone had to do to be considered an enemy was not to speak to someone for one month. Now, the Pharisees justified their misinterpretation by twisting Leviticus 19, 16-18. You are not to act against the life of your neighbor, I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sins of your people. Again, that's Leviticus 19, 16-18. You see, according to the text, they claimed a neighbor is a fellow countryman. They reasoned that a fellow countryman would not wrong another countryman. Thus, they concluded that if someone wrongs another, they were not countrymen, and therefore not neighbors, but an enemy. And because they were enemies, they could hate them. After all, it's far easier to seek revenge against someone hated than against someone loved. Now, while their rationale may seem like a stretch, it's far easier to believe such a rationale when you're looking for a reason to hate someone or retaliate against someone. Clear thinking goes out the door when you're motivated by hate. 
Now, the Pharisees' rationale is problematic, not only because it adds and omits from the law, but because it blatantly ignores other ordinances of God's law. Specifically, they ignored the ordinance for dealing with one's enemies. For example, Exodus 23, 4-5. Exodus 23, 4-5. It says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Fascinatingly, there's a similar command for dealing with one's countrymen's ox or sheep. Deuteronomy 22, 1-4. Again, Deuteronomy 22, 1-4. States, you shall not see your countrymen's ox or his sheep strain away and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. See, the similarity of these two commands underscores that regardless of whether the animal belongs to one's brother or one's enemy, they're to be treated the same way as one's neighbor. Furthermore, the Pharisees' rationale is problematic because it ignores God's wisdom. Proverbs 24, 17 to 18. Again, Proverbs 24, 17 to 18 states, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord God will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. See, my friends, God warns you not to gloat when your enemy fails or has a problem. You ever done that? You ever gloated when somebody you didn't like, your quote-unquote enemy, failed or had a problem? Well, don't do it. Don't do it. You better repent. God warns you here, don't do it, or he will turn his anger at you. You see, God hates gloating over another person's failures because it's unloving and it presents you as better than them. Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. Proverbs 25, 21 to 22 states, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. See, my friends, providing food and water is not an act of hate, but love. Heaping coals of fire on his head, often misinterpreted or misunderstood as an act of vengeance. However, it means something entirely different. See, this idiom developed from an Egyptian ritual that required a person guilty of some unlawful deed to carry a pan of burning coals on their head as a sign of repentance. Hence the idiom expresses the idea of repentance. In other words, showing kindness to one's enemy may cause them to evaluate their lives and repent of their sins. So in response to the Pharisees' blatant misinterpretation, Jesus replies, but I say to you. That is, he authoritatively presents the correct interpretation and elevates God's law back to its original intent. The royal law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. To put it another way, the way you love yourself is the standard for loving others. See, it's all about self-love. Self-love means taking action concerning your welfare. It involves going beyond caring for your basic needs to meeting your wants and desires. The same degree of love that you have for yourself 
caring for your welfare, pursuing your wants and desires, is the same love you should have for your neighbors. Do you have that kind of love? And so loving others the same way you love yourself requires being selfless. Now immediately you're asking the question, who does the term neighbor apply? Again, the Pharisees limited one's neighbor to their fellow citizen. However, that was not God's original intent. In Luke 10, when dealing with a lawyer, Jesus presented the parable of the Good Samaritan to define one's neighbor. He stated that a neighbor is not necessarily someone who lives next door or of the same ethnicity or religious circles. A neighbor is anyone with whom you can share God's love. See, believer, you and I are called not only to love those who are similar to us or with whom we are comfortable, but we're to love all whom God places in our path. Can you say that you do that? Can you honestly say that you love everyone who comes in your path? So as Jesus elevates the royal law to its original intent, he includes one's enemies as part of one's neighbor's. As such, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the imperative verb love, agapao, is a command to sacrificially seek someone else's highest good with no expectation of anything in return. See, it's choosing to do good even towards the unlikable and unlovable, or in this case, one's enemy. Now, consider this. You did something for someone they didn't respond the way you thought they should. What's your response? Well, our natural response is, wash your hands, be done with them. But, biblically, we're still to seek their highest good. We're to do good even towards the unlikable and unlovable. Now, the term enemies denotes someone hating or hostile towards another person. So, biblically, who are our enemies? Who is the enemies of believers? To answer that question, consider that there are three categories of enemies. Enemy category one is those who oppose the Lord. Enemy category one is those who oppose the Lord. David proclaims in Psalm 139, 21-22, Psalm 139, 21-22, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatreds. They have become my enemies. Now, before you all lose your mind, consider David is affirming that God's enemies are his enemies. The term hate here, sana means to reject or disavow any association with someone. We can refer to this hate as perfect hatred or righteous hatred, similar to righteous anger. David's hate, or refusal to associate with someone opposed to God, is different from the term hate, missio, in Matthew 5.43, which means to undertake hostile actions against someone. There's a vast difference between disavowing any association with someone and going out and undertaking hostile actions against someone. So we as believers should hate, quote-unquote, or disavow those opposed to God and yet still love them 
by seeking their highest good, which in this case would be repentance and faith in the gospel. Enemy category two is those pursuing worldliness. Enemy category two is those pursuing worldliness. James 4.4 warns, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, friendship means sharing a spiritual and physical union with another individual. The object of this union, in James 4.4, is the world, that satanic system in rebellion towards the true God. Loving the satanic system of rebellion is hostility towards God. That verb hostility means to be an enemy of God. In other words, if you as a believer wish to be a friend of the world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. Jesus will take up this issue in Matthew 6.24 when he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Dabbling with worldliness, friends, makes you enemies, not friends, with God. Enemy category three is those who persecute believers. Enemy category three is those who persecute believers. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Enemies are defined by the parallel phrase, those who persecute you. Persecute means to harass someone for the purpose of causing physical or emotional pain and discomfort. Hence, those who persecute believers, that is, who harass them, either physically or emotionally, and cause them pain and discomfort, have the notorious distinction of being their enemies. So in the context, therefore, of Matthew 5, 43-44, Jesus' admonition to love one's enemies specifically refers to those who are persecuting you. Now, how does one love someone who is harassing them or causing them pain? That's a great question. Again, Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. See, believers, we are to love our persecutors by seeking their highest good, and we seek their highest good by praying for them. That verb pray, prosukamai, denotes supplications made to obtain good or avert evil in times of suffering. We're suffering, but we're praying for them. Now, during his Sermon on the Plain, Jesus also addressed this issue. Specifically in Luke 6, 27-28, Jesus says, again, Luke 6, 27-28, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. See, the implication here is that our enemy hates, curses, and mistreats us. But, Jesus defines loving our enemies here by being good to them, blessing them, and again, praying for them. Now, I want you to think right now about someone who you consider an enemy. Maybe they've hated you, maybe they've cursed you, maybe they've mistreated you. Now, I want you to ask yourself this and be honest before a holy God. Are you good to them? Have you blessed them? Have you prayed for them? That's to be our response to them. Now, some view Jesus' command to love one's enemies as contradictory to God's actions against Israel's enemies in the Old Testament. Now, the tension between these two positions has led many to assume that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is not the same. However, such tension needs not exist. See, there is a distinction between the type of enemies in view. 
Again, when Jesus speaks of a believer's enemies, he speaks or refers to those who oppose the Lord, pursue worldliness, or persecute believers. However, in the Old Testament, the enemy whom God authorized Israel to destroy were those who posed, now here it is, listen carefully, those who posed a national threat against the nation's sovereignty. You see, friends, a nation has a right to defend itself against all who threatens its land, people, and interest. A nation engaged in a war is not under the command to love its enemies. If the war is just, then the destruction of those enemies in said conflict is just. However, believer, listen carefully. Individually, you're not a nation. Even collectively as the church, we're not a nation. Hence, as believers, we do not have a basis for hating or being hostile towards our enemies. So that brings up a question. What about a believer who serves in the military? Is that a problem? Short answer, no. What if they kill an enemy combatant? Are they guilty of hating their enemy? Again, short answer, no. A believer would not be guilty of hating their enemy. See, as soldiers, they serve at the discretion of their nation. And as already stated, Jesus' command does not apply to national defense or just wars. See, in war, one shoots to suppress the enemy. And that often results in death. I would give this caveat. Any believer engaged in national defense or a just war must guard their emotion. Beware of being motivated by hate. Beware of even enjoying the slaughter of enemy combatants. I offer you a statement by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, We may kill if necessary, but we must not hate and enjoy hating. We may punish if necessary, but we must not enjoy it. Even while we kill and punish, we must try to feel about the enemy as we feel about ourselves. To wish that he were not bad to hope that he may, in this world or another, be cured. In fact, to wish his good. That is what is meant in the Bible by loving him. Wishing his good, not feeling fond of him, nor saying he is nice when he is not. And I, I, and I think that last statement is so needed. Again, we can love them by wishing him good. Doesn't mean we have to feel fond of him, nor does it mean we have to say nice things about them when he's not or she's not nice. Now, whereas Jesus properly interpreted the royal law, he then practically applied it. Hence, Matthew 5, 45-48 presents the royal law practically applied. The royal law practically applied, Matthew 5, 45-48. Let's read it together. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Notice that Jesus begins by stating, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That verb may be, you know my, is to assume a particular state or condition. The state or condition in which we as kingdom citizens are to find ourselves as children of God. 
Hence, as we love our enemies, we demonstrate that we are indeed sons of our Father who is in heaven. Now, believer, you need to remember, one time you were an enemy of God, Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Nonetheless, God loved us. Despite our enemy status, he saved us and adopted us as his children. We have received much love, and because of the much love we have received, we need to demonstrate much love. We need to act like our Heavenly Father and demonstrate love even to our enemies. Next, Jesus provides examples of how God loves his friends and his enemies. He says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Note that Jesus emphasizes that the son belongs to God. It belongs to God because he created it. And because it belongs to him, God can do with it as he pleases. Jesus' referral to the rain also adopted a common Jewish teaching of the day that rain was a sign of God's blessing. The point Jesus makes is that God shares his love indiscriminately and equally to all, the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. Theologically, this is what we know as common grace. Now, while common grace is not saving grace, it is necessary precursor to saving grace. You see, as people see and experience God's common grace, they see evidence of God's love and are drawn to Him so that they can receive saving grace. Now, returning to Jesus' point, believer, like your Father, you're to love everyone, including your enemies, indiscriminately and equally. Can you say that about yourself? Can you say before a holy God that you love your enemies the same way you love your friends? You need to love everyone indiscriminately and equally. We've got a lot to work on, friends. Jesus asks, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Again, the verb love, agapao, is that sacrificial love seeking the highest good of another. The term reward, mythos, refers to credit or a benefit. In other words, what benefit is there if you only sacrificially love those who sacrificially love you? There's no benefit. In Luke 6.32, Jesus asked the same question with an addition. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. See, friends, even the unregenerate show love to those who love them. There is nothing saintly or sacrificial in such love. Jesus asks a second question to bolster his first. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In Jewish culture, a tax collector was viewed as a traitor to the Jewish people, a loyalist to Rome, and an outcast. His point is that even the worst Jewish person loves those who love them. Again, there's nothing saintly or sacrificial in such love. Jesus' third question broadens the scope of love to the bare minimum, a social greeting. He asks, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? The verb greet, aspazomai, expresses a hospitable welcome to someone, whether in word or deed. Brother Adelphos, in the context, conveys the idea of a neighbor. Jesus' point is that everyone expresses a hospitable welcome to their neighbor. There's nothing sacrificial in warmly welcoming one's brother or neighbor. Such a greeting is customary and expected. Jesus asks a fourth question, meant to bolster his third. He asks, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now the term Gentile was used to describe a pagan or unregenerate person. 
His point, Jesus' point, is that even pagan and unregenerate people warmly greet their friends and family. Again, such a greeting is customary and expected. There is nothing saintly or sacrificial in such greetings. See, friends, as kingdom citizens, we need to do more than simply greet and sacrificially love our family and friends. Consider again Jesus' question, what more are you doing than others? That term more, parisos, implies the idea of surpassing or extraordinary. Hence, the love demonstrated by us, us believers, us kingdom citizens, should surpass the religious and unregenerate. Does your love surpass the unregenerate love? Does your love surpass what the religious put on? See, the love demonstrated by us, believer, our love should be extraordinary. Our love needs to go beyond the norm. Is there any more excellent demonstration of sacrificial love than the love demonstrated by Jesus? Remember that out of love he sacrificially laid down his life not for those who loved him, but for those who hated and despised him. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, kingdom citizens, we must love everyone, including our enemies. How you doing with that? We need to love them indiscriminately. We need to love them equally, just like our Heavenly Father. Hence, Jesus concludes his discourse on the royal law by stating, Therefore you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, depending on the context, the term perfect, theleos, has two meanings. On the one hand, when used in a moral context, it refers to being without defect. On the other hand, if the context refers to a goal, the term is defined as complete. Now, Jesus' admonition is an allusion to Deuteronomy 18.13. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. The Hebrew term blameless, tamim, means perfect or complete. The thrust of that verse is that God is the moral standard to which people should conform. In order to accomplish that, God gave his people his law, which reflects his righteous character. Now, in the immediate context of Matthew 5.43-48, the term perfect refers to the goal of loving as God loves. However, listen carefully, in the greater context of Matthew 5, 17 to 38, the term perfect refers to complete obedience to God's will as given in his law and correctly interpreted by Jesus. Now, this is entirely in line with Jesus' other teachings, particularly when he states that obedience to the law is summed up in love. You shall love the Lord your God, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 36-39. Now, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he also taught the same principle. He wrote, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, in a similar teaching, in Luke 6, 36, Jesus said, Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now, the context of Luke 6.36 is upon loving one's enemies. While the context between the two passages is similar, they're also different. Both Matthew 5.48 and Luke 6.36 are part of sermons delivered by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Whereas the Sermon on the Mount was preached solely to the disciples, the Sermon on the Plain was preached to the disciples and the general public. 
The question that arises then is why did Jesus tell his disciples to be perfect like their father and then tell them to be merciful like their father in another setting? As stated, the term perfect, teleos, refers to the goal of loving like God. The term merciful, uitirman, is the demonstration of love. Upon closer inspection, Jesus likely said the same thing in both passages. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Hence, when Matthew and Luke recorded what he said, they used two different Greek terms to translate the same Aramaic term. In this context, Jesus has said his Father's love is the goal for how we are to love others. Hence, when Jesus commands us to be perfect, he means that we're to pursue the goal of being just like our Father. This admonishment's not new. Five times in Leviticus, Yahweh said, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourself therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11.44, 45, 19.2, 20 verse 7, and 20 verse 26. See friends, imitation or obedience to God is possible because as kingdom citizens, we have been given a new nature. Through repentance of our sins and faith in the gospel, we have become sons of God. Now, don't confuse the phrase sons of God with child of God. Every believer, listen, at the moment of salvation, you became a child of God. You're part of the family of God. You carry the family name, which is Christian. But that doesn't make you a son of God. To be a son of God is something different and something I want to challenge you to be. You see, the phrase Son of God denotes the idea of character. In other words, a Son of God is someone who not only carries the family name, but carries the family character, which is peace. Remember, Christ is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. When Jesus outlined the characteristics of a kingdom citizen in Matthew 5, 3 to 12, remember what he said in verse 9, Blessed are the who? Peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. See, believers, you and I, when we demonstrate sacrificial love towards our enemies, we will be characterized as peacemakers and we will be sons of God. Don't be satisfied just being a child of God. And praise God you're a child of God, but don't be satisfied. Pursue, go on, and reach to the goal of being a son of God. Being characterized by peace. Being a peacemaker. Being one who goes out and seeks to make peace. Not just have peace with those they like, but to have peace with those that they don't like. And we do that by loving our enemies. Friends, as kingdom citizens, the royal law means that we cannot allow animosity towards others to prevent us from being kind or just. Regardless of what they've done, it is no excuse for us to return their evil with more evil. As an aside, living by the royal law does not prohibit self-defense. It does not encourage someone to remain a victim to violence, nor does it mean that we turn a blind eye towards injustice. Obedience to the royal law cannot happen without a new heart. The only means by which you can demonstrate God's love to others is to have God's love yourself. Now, if you're struggling to show love to others, you have to stop and ask, Do I have the love of God? Now, if you're honestly saying, yes, I have God's love, now you need to get to the hard issue as to why then you're not showing that same love to everybody else. You say, well, I don't know how to do it. Listen, kingdom citizen, the best way we can start loving the unlovable is right here in our text. Pray for them. 
If we only love the lovable, we're no different than the unregenerate. And so my final word is this. Believer, strive to love your enemies. And love your enemies by praying for them, by being good to them, by blessing them, and again, pray for them. And on that note, let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we come before you again with thanksgiving for the opportunity to study your word, to open this text up and to dig into it, Father. And we must confess that it's easy to hate our enemies. We're not going to lie to you, Lord. We're not going to say we don't have enemies. Every person has somebody who ha who's their enemy. Somebody who they just don't like, don't care for, don't want to be part of. And that's just an unfortunate, natural aspect of this life because of sin. And yet, Father, you command us in your law to love our neighbors, and that includes loving our enemies. Father, it doesn't mean we have to like them. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them. It doesn't mean we've got to say nice things that simply aren't true about them. But it does mean we need to sacrificially seek their highest good. It means we've got to pray for them, Lord. It means that we've got to do good. We've got to bless them. And Father, that's not natural. We can only accomplish those things through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And so, Father, I pray that through your Spirit, you might help us to guard our emotions. Father, at the beginning of these misinterpretations of the law, we began with the prohibition against murder, and we saw that that included hating. And now we come to the end, and you're warning us not to hate our enemies. Father, if we fail to do good, if we fail to bless them, if we fail to pray for them, if we allow hatred to reign in our lives, we are guilty not only of violating the royal law, but violating the command prohibiting murder. So, Father, help us to that end, to be victorious, to fulfill the royal law, and so, Father, in doing so, may we be pleasing to you. May we love as you loved, as you loved us when we were once your enemies. Help us to love our enemies. We pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.